Our passage today is Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 33. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Not yet. There I am. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all today. I've been looking forward to this. As Jeremy said, we had a great time yesterday. At least I did anyway. I don't know if anybody else who was here did, but I was blessed by me. And uh, that's permissible, I think. Preachers are allowed to be blessed. But it's such a privilege and honor to be with you all here today. Um, I don't know if you saw the title to the message. Did you project that on the screen or not? Maybe not. But I want to say just a brief word about it. Uh, The title to this message is Partnering with God Through Prayer to Shape the Course of History. And as I've thought more and more about the title to that, uh, it seems a little grandiose, a little over the top, maybe a bit exaggerated. Um, is, it, is it too much? Uh, is it almost sensationalistic to suggest that we can actually partner with God literally to change the course of history? And I hope this morning that as we dig, dig deeply into this passage, you will see that it's not an exaggeration, that it is quite literally true. So, Pray with me as we begin and turn our attention to God's Word. Father, I ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would awaken our hearts, that you would impress upon us the urgency of our interceding in accordance with your expressed will. And Lord, I pray that you would overcome any objections we have in our hearts, any reservations we have regarding prayer and its necessity and its urgency. And Lord, to think that you have called us as your children, broken and weak as we are, to partner with you in bringing to pass your purposes in the earth, it's stunning, it's breathtaking. So impress upon us this morning that truth. So we pray Psalm 119, verse 18. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. If there is anything that I think all of us will agree upon, it is that prayer is one of the deepest and the most profound mysteries in the Christian life. There's so many questions that I have regarding it. Why does God encourage us to pray? Why does He suspend the dispensing of His blessings on our asking for them? Why is it that God just doesn't do it? Why, why does He say, I'll answer you, I'll act when you call, when I hear your cry? Yesterday I asked everyone present the question, do you presumptuously expect God to do for you, apart from prayer, what He has ordained in His Word that He'll only do in response to your prayer? Now these are all very important questions. And I'm not going to suggest that this one passage today is going to answer all of them, but it is a good place for us to begin. Now, a few words about the Apostle Paul. 
obviously who wrote the book of Romans, so you can understand what is going on in this passage. Paul was not the sort of man who made plans irrespective of or in denial of the sovereign providential will of God. He knew that his schedule was always subject to revision. We know from an earlier statement in Romans 15, Paul tells the Roman Christians, he said, I want to eventually come to you. I want to visit you. But first, I need to go back to Jerusalem. And then when I come to see you in Rome, I want you to help me on my way to Spain. But Paul was very sensitive to the fact that all of this could change. And he didn't know whether or not God would facilitate that trip. And so he, enters, he asked the Romans, would you come to the throne of grace on my behalf and ask that God may, might make this possible? Now, in this passage that we've just read, and I hope you have your Bibles open so you can follow along with me, there are four things that I want to draw our attention to. First is the basis of Paul's appeal to the Roman Christians. He mentions two things, the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Second, we have to give weight to what Paul says about striving or struggling in prayer. Now, I probably don't have to expand on that much because all of you know how much of a struggle prayer is. But against whom or what are we striving? Well, we'll talk about that. And then thirdly and most importantly, there are three things that Paul asks the Romans to intercede for him concerning. And then finally, there is a brief prayer by Paul for the Romans, or more likely, we should describe it as a blessing. Now, let me start with the basis of Paul's appeal. I noticed in the translation on the screen, it says, I urge you to intercede with me. The ESV translates it, I appeal to you. And I want you to feel the force of that word. This, this is not just one, another run-of-the-mill request as if Paul is saying, hey, Romans, you know, you find a few minutes in the course of the day, and if God happens to bring to your mind me and my journeys, would you pray for me? No, there's a sense of emergency in Paul's language. This is a very passionate appeal. Please intercede for me. He is in great need. He's genuinely desperate for their prayerful support. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that Paul was frightened, but he was undoubtedly greatly concerned about what might happen to him in Jerusalem if they didn't pray on his behalf. Now again, this raises a question, and I don't really have a great answer for it, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Why does Paul ask them to join him in prayer? I mean, he says right there in our passage, he says, would you strive together with me? So Paul's saying, I'm praying that God would make this happen. Why does he want other people to pray with him? Does it matter how many pray? Is not one intercessory request enough? Does God look down on us and say, well, you know, three of you prayed for this, but if 10 had, I really would have been inclined to say yes. Does God count heads? Do numbers matter? My guess is I was told that uh, there is a group of individuals here at Trinity that pray before the service. Does it matter that there's more than one there? When they might appeal to you to join them, does, does that somehow add weight to the efficacy of their intercessory requests? I don't know that I've got a really good answer for that, but I, I do have a couple of thoughts. At, at Bridgeway, the church where I pastored for 14 years, uh, we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday from noon to one. And every week we appeal to people, come and join us. Uh, we used to have only about 10 or 12 people. There are now about 75 or 80 that gather for that one hour every Wednesday at noon. 
Every Sunday morning, we have intercessory prayer teams praying through both of the services. Why do we appeal to people? Why do we need a team? Why don't we just assign one person to pray? What difference does it make? How many? Well, a couple of thoughts. I think God encourages multitudes to join together in prayer because it builds community. It unites Christians in a common purpose. It builds their love and deepens their spiritual connection with each other. Furthermore, I think God does it because He wants us all to see how powerful prayer can be. When many, rather than just a handful, pray together and they see God answer, they are together exposed to or they're enlightened about the incredible power that prayer has. And I think perhaps the most important reason why multitudes praying together in unison is important is because God is more greatly glorified by it. I mean, think about it this way. If multitudes are praying for the same thing and they all together see the answer come, they in turn then praise God and glorify Him for the way He has responded to their requests. So the more people praying, more gratitude is given to God, and more gratitude means greater glory and greater honor and attention to Him. So I think it's good that we try to multiply the number of people who intercede. I think it's perfectly permissible for you to ask others to pray for you. Even if you can't quite figure out why numbers matter, just do it anyway, because the Bible says that we're supposed to. Now, I want to do something right now that um, I, I really was hesitant about whether I should mention this, but I thought, no, I need to be honest about the text of Scripture. So I'm getting ready to make some of you really mad, and I'm going to burst your bubbles. I'm going to slay a sacred cow, and I'm going to say a few things about a, a very long-cherished text of Scripture that uh, you're going to be upset with me, but just bear with me and just listen to God's Word. I'm talking about what's called the so-called law of agreement. You all know this, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, where Jesus said, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And I've heard so many Christians say, well, there it is. If I can just get two or three people to join with me in prayer, and we can all agree, that pretty much guarantees that God will answer our prayer. Well, let's think about that. Let's look at that passage in its context. When you turn to Matthew chapter 18, it's very clear that Jesus is addressing the issue of church discipline. He's talking about the procedural steps that a church will go through when an individual sins against another person and does not repent. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the first step is private rebuke. Your brother or sister sinned against you. You go to them, you say, hey, this is wrong. You've really transgressed. If they repent, wonderful. End of story. But if they don't, we're told if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then he says, if he still refuses to repent, the third step is public rebuke in the presence of the whole church. And if he still doesn't repent, you might have to separate him from the body of Christ. The formal word is excommunication. So when Jesus says down in verses 19 and 20, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When you see that in the context of what has just preceded, you recognize that the two or three are the two people involved in this dispute, together with a third witness who is brought in alongside to help resolve the matter. So, for example, when Jesus says, if you agree on earth about anything you ask, well, the word ask there doesn't refer to intercessory requests, like, oh, Lord, would you help me get a new job, or I need a raise, or uh, would you, you know, help my kids walk with the Lord? It's rather in the sense of any legitimate uh, dispute that exists in the body of Christ. In fact, the word anything here is used in 1 Corinthians 6.1 to refer to any judicial matter that comes before the church. So my point simply is this. Um, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to undermine your favorite verse. But the simple fact of the matter is, I don't think Jesus is talking about prayer at all in this passage. I think he's talking about the procedural steps for how to adjudicate a situation of church discipline when one person has sinned against another and refuses to repent. Now, the reason why it was important for me to share that is because I have run across many people in the body of Christ, and maybe you're among them, where you found two or three others who can agree with you on a matter, and you felt this surge of confidence that because of that you were obeying this text, and therefore God would answer your prayer. And then He didn't. And you were crushed, and you lost confidence in God and His Word. And I don't want you to lose confidence in God and His Word. So that's why I had to slay the sacred cow here today. I hope you don't mind that. Now, returning to our text, on what basis does Paul make this appeal? Well, he mentions two things. He says, by or through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he may just simply be saying, in, in light of the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life and died our death on the cross and rose again, on the basis of all he's done for us, please join me in prayer. But I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I think there's something deeper here. Notice he doesn't just say Jesus Christ, it is by our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul here is appealing to Christ because he knows that Jesus as Lord has sovereign authority over the minds and the hearts and the decisions of human beings, those with whom he's going to come into contact when he finally makes his way to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul knows that Jesus has the right, the power, and the authority to orchestrate events and to turn the hearts and minds of government officials and religious leaders to do whatever God wants. That's what Paul is asking for. He's saying, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has authority to work in the hearts and minds of these people that I'm going to encounter in Jerusalem. So that's why he appeals to Christ in this place. He also appeals to the love of the Spirit, which probably is a reference to the love that Paul and the Romans have for one another that was sustained by the Spirit. Now, second thing I want you to notice, why does Paul say struggle or strive together with me in prayer? There's an interesting passage in Colossians when Paul wrote his epistle to the church at Colossae. He'd never been to Colossae. A man named Epaphras had planted the church there. And in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. What well, raises the question, what are we struggling against? Against whom or what are we having to strive? Is it a God? Well, of course not. 
I mean, we aren't in a wrestling match with God trying to pin him to the mat and compel him to give us what we want. We aren't trying to coerce or bully God into granting us our prayer requests. We aren't trying to, to persuade him if he's disinclined or reluctant and we're bringing all these arguments to bear upon him so that we'll change his mind. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think at minimum, he's talking about demons. He's talking about Satan's attempt to thwart our prayer life. You remember in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says that we wrestle. We could just as easily translate that strive and struggle against rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I don't know if you realize this, Satan doesn't want you to pray. Demons are actively involved in trying to convince you that prayer is useless. They try to sow the seeds of doubt in your mind and your heart. Who do you think you are? You puny little sinful fallen Christian. You think God is going to listen to you and do what you ask? You're just, you're just not important enough. Prayer doesn't work. God isn't listening. You're too sinful. You're too dumb. You failed too many times. Who are you anyway that you think the creator of the universe is going to heed your request? The enemy is constantly sowing those seeds of doubt in your mind and heart. And you have to push back and strive and struggle against it. I think he's also talking about striving against just the ordinary distractions of life. You ever found yourself, you try to separate yourself, you get in a quiet place, you're going to spend time in prayer, and the phone rings. Or the kids rush in. One of them fell down and bumped his head. Or the doorbell rings. All the normal distractions that disrupt you. Or maybe it's just the laziness of our own souls. It's so easy to quit rather than to press in. Or it may be that you just run out of words. You don't know what else to say. And you just kind of throw up your hands and say, oh, I'm done. Or maybe the struggle is against the disillusionment and disappointment <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of unanswered prayer in the past. You've been to the throne of grace. You've asked God for things. And it hasn't come about. So you think, why should it be any different now? You have to push back. You have to struggle and strive against those things. You have to struggle against the sin in your own life. Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist said, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And then there's the struggle against unbelief. Is God really there? Are my prayers just kind of bouncing off the ceiling? Is, is there really a sovereign creator listening to what I am requesting? So whatever the distraction, and we could go on and on, whatever the obstacle, press in, strive, devote yourself in the power of God, cling to his promises. Remember Hebrews 4.16, that we are told to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a, in a time of need. Let me give you real quickly one example of what I think Paul's talking about. The book of Daniel. Listen to how Daniel intercedes for the people of Israel while they're in captivity. Listen to the language. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear, open your eyes, and see our desolations. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, forgive, pay attention, act, delay not. 
for your sake, O God, because of your city and your people who are called by your name. Now, how do you think God responds to that kind of urgent language in prayer? If you look, you say, Danny, settle down, fella. The energy isn't needed. I mean, come on, cool your jets. No, I think God is blessed by that. I mean, that language just blows me away. I, I turned my face. I sought him. I, I was pleading for mercy. I was fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Lord, listen to me. Incline your ear. Open your eyes. Hear, forgive, pay attention, act, don't delay. Is that the kind of prayers that you have? That's the kind that Paul is asking the Romans to join him in bringing to the throne of grace. And by the way, if you find that to be a challenge that you don't think you can meet, you're right, you can't. When Paul wrote to the Colossians and he was describing to them how he was able to sustain his ministry, he said in chapter 1, verse 21, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It is God's strength, God's sustaining presence that enables you to persevere in prayer. Now, we come to the most important part of this prayer. The three requests that Paul makes, and I want you to look at this closely with me. Paul obviously believed in the power of prayer. Yesterday, we looked at a couple of texts during the times in which Paul was imprisoned. And he wrote to Philemon, he wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, I trust that it's through your prayers that I'm going to find my release. But it's interesting here, did you notice that Paul doesn't presume to know God's will? Look again at our passage. He says, so that, in verse 30, so that, pray for me, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed. He, he doesn't presume to know God's sovereign purposes. Now, we can know God's revealed will. It's right here in Scripture. But God's sovereign secret will, like with Paul, am I ever going to make it to Jerusalem? Am I ever going to make it to Rome? Am I going to make my way to Spain? He doesn't presume to know. We find this all through Scripture. Let me just give you some examples. Acts chapter 18, verse 21. But on taking leave of the church at Ephesus, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Romans 1, 9 and 10. He says, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 1 Corinthians 4, 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16, 7, I do, not want to, I, I, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul said, I don't know if, if God is going to orchestrate these events. Philippians 2, 24, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly will come. So again, Paul was cognizant of the fact that everything that happens in his life, everything that happens in your life, is subject to God's providential will. So, that being the case, what does he ask these Romans to do? Notice, first of all, verse 31. Pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, why did Paul ask that? Well, let me explain what happened. When Paul finally made it to Jerusalem, we read about the story in Acts chapter 21. And we read in verse 27 that the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, <clears throat> stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. They hated Paul. They didn't like the gospel he was preaching. And then we read that all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. So here Paul's life is obviously in danger. Paul knew that this was coming. That's why he said, Romans, pray for me that, that God will deliver me. 
from all my enemies in Judea. So how was Paul saved? Folks, this is so beautiful. I love it. Luke tells us in Acts 21, 31, quote, as they were seeking to kill him, word came. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. From whom? In what form? How? So here Paul is being assaulted by this Jewish mob. They're about to kill him. And suddenly, word came to the Roman tribune. And we're told that he immediately sent soldiers into the scene. They rescued Paul. They put him in jail for his own protection. Think about that. The prayers of the church in Rome that Paul be delivered from unbelievers in Judea was answered when God responded to their request by making certain that word came to the Roman tribune of the cohort. God did that, but he did it in response to the prayers of the church in Rome. It's just stunning. Now again, think about, I just want you to get your mind around this. Okay, Paul is in Corinth when he's writing his letter to the Romans. When he writes Romans, he's in Corinth. Rome is about a thousand miles to the west. Jerusalem is about a thousand miles to the east. So Paul writes this letter to the Romans a thousand miles away. He said, would you all please intercede with God that when I make my way to Jerusalem, he would orchestrate events that would protect my life while I'm there. And that is precisely what happened. But that wasn't the only answer. It continues. We're told in Acts 23 that while Paul was in jail, there were more than 40 Jews who made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed him. I mean, those people are serious. They said, Let's, we're not going to eat or drink anything until we kill this man and silence his voice. And then the text says, somehow Paul's nephew got wind of their plot And he went again to the Roman tribune, who immediately, we were told, dispatched 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to escort Paul to Caesarea. All of that transpiring in response to the prayers of Christians 2,000 miles away who didn't know a single soul in Jerusalem. That's the power of prayer. Do you have any idea the course of human history? Not just the church, but all of history. Had they not prayed and had Paul not been delivered and he died in Jerusalem and not fulfilled his ultimate goal in ministry? It's just simply stunning. Now, that's not the only thing he asked. Look again at verse 31. He asked them to pray that his service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, what's he talking about? Well, let me just read to you. In the immediately preceding verses in Romans 15, Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there. And he says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. Now, you may recall the church in Jerusalem at this time was in the midst of a famine. They were poverty-stricken. It was just a horrible, horrible situation. And you can read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 how Paul appeals to the Corinthian believers to raise up an offering to be generous that can send that to Jerusalem to help the Christians in that church. And he actually mentions the Christians in Macedonia and Achaia. These are Gentile believers. Paul says, you should should have seen their generosity. It's an example to you Corinthians. They gave well beyond their means to help the Christians who are suffering in Jerusalem. And so Paul now, having made this collection, is sitting here with this huge amount of money. 
And he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem and deliver this. That's what he means when he's talking about this, um, this service for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, why does he ask prayer for that? Well, it's obvious there were still some Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were suspicious of Paul. They thought he was still trying to overthrow some of their Jewish traditions and customs. Maybe Paul was concerned that they would look upon this financial offering as a bribe, trying to win favor with them, when in fact it was just an effort to be generous to help their fellow Christians. So here Paul is saying, Romans, ask God to influence their minds, to transform how they think about me. Ask God to sovereignly work in their hearts so that they will understand my true motives and receive this service. Now, was that prayer answered? Well, we don't really have concrete evidence, but I think there's a hint of it in Acts chapter 24, 17, where we read, now after several years, Paul says, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And there's no indication that those were rejected. So I think that prayer was answered. So you look at these and you say, so does this mean that prayer really does change things? I would rather say God changes things in response to our prayer that he changed things. And the answer obviously is yes. In this case, the willing of an angry Jewish mob was changed. God moved on their hearts and minds. The willing of, uh, of a Roman tribune was changed and moved upon in response to the prayers of God's people, and Paul was saved. The willing of suspicious Jewish Christians to disapprove the monetary gift was changed by God in response to the prayers of his people. If Paul didn't himself believe that God had the authority and the power and disposition to change human choices, he wouldn't have asked the Romans to join him in praying for these things. And the course of human history is altogether what it is now precisely because those Christians in Rome, a couple of thousand miles away, who didn't know anybody in Jerusalem, faithfully interceded on Paul's behalf. And then, of course, thirdly, Paul says, pray with me so that I, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Can you not see from this simple text how incredibly urgent and powerful prayer is in the life of God's people? Folks, I'm, I'm telling you this. I, I believe it because the Bible says it, but I've seen it from experience. If you are not a praying church, if you are not committed to regular, consistent, intercessory seeking of the face of God in prayer, not much is going to happen here. You're not going to see spiritual growth. You're not going to see souls saved. You're not going to see people healed of sickness. You're not going to see people set free from demonic oppression. God has chosen to suspend these blessings upon the intercessory requests of his people. That's why when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, pray for those in authority, for kings and all who are in high position. Do you pray for the president? Do you pray for your representatives? Do you pray for Congress and the Supreme Court? Do you pray for your mayor? Do you pray for judges? Do you pray for the leaders of your university? Do you pray for the president, the provost, the professors? Do you pray for business leaders, military officers, administrators in our local elementary schools? Do you pray regularly for missionaries on the field? Do you think that somehow the distance between Columbia, Missouri and some other place on the face of the earth is too great for God to span? God has called us and commissioned us as his people to come boldly to the throne of grace, to intercede for all these many reasons. 
And when we do, I am convinced that when we finally make it to heaven, we will discover how the course of human history in many instances was changed for the good and the glory of God because of the faithful prayers of his people. Let's pray. Father, we just marvel at your ways. We don't understand them. They're complex. They're deep. They're beyond our capacity to grasp. And yet, Lord, we know that you have called us as your people to partner with you. That's just, that's mind-blowing, Lord, that we, broken, weak, sinful, selfish people, could partner with the creator of the universe, the God who has Genesis 1 on his resume, that you would call us to participate with you in accomplishing your purposes in the earth. And Lord, we take your word for what it says, and I pray that you would raise up in this body of believers here in Columbia just a multitude of faithful intercessors who would strive and struggle and not give up and press into your heart so that your purposes in this city and in the earth would be achieved all for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.